Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of season 14 of Listener Questions, the longest running the Game of Thrones LCG podcast that has based this season's openings around the U2 song Vertigo. I am your regular host, James Wormsley, and I am joined for the third and final time this season by Matt Herdman. Say hi, Matt. Hello, James. How's it going? Very good. Since like the last month it's been since we recorded episode two. Yeah, I feel this might be the longest running season of uh, listener questions. Certainly to record, probably to for me to get around to edit as well. Um, we'll see. You never know. I might get the last two up in like the next like five minutes or something, <laughs> and then it'll be fine. Yeah, I thought you. I thought I'd done so badly in the first two. That you <laughs> want, mm, let's avoid this third one for as long as possible. No, I was just trying to give us time because obviously we did this season once already. Now you know we won't remember what I know to be said the previous time. It'll all sound authentic. That's true. Yeah. I'm just galaxy braining it. <laughs> but what is this question we've already asked once or answered once? I hear you ask, and it is from Michael Wolf, and it is. What is the optimal balance in a deck for elements that construct your own wind condition versus elements that control or impede your opponent? What would you say would be the bare minimum of each element a deck should include if you hope to be reasonably competitive with it? Um, so Matt, what's the optimal balance in a deck for elements that construct your own wind condition versus elements that control slash impede your opponent? And what would you say would be the bare minimum of each element a deck should include if you hope to be reasonably competitive with it? Um, just go for six. Six cards. That seems pretty reasonable. <laughs> now, um, um, obviously, this is, it's so deck dependent, there isn't really a defined answer to this, but I think there's a lot to talk about and discuss and like how you come to the numbers that you do end up with in your specific deck. Yeah, I completely agree. So I guess first of all, we need to sort of like get some definitions in. So we talk about card or elements in a deck that construct your own win condition versus elements that control or impede. So, first of all, by elements, I think we're basically we're meaning cards. Yeah, I think so. That's We'll simplify it and say cards. It's one syllable instead of three. Yeah. Either cards or synergies, maybe, but I guess that's just cards as well. Yeah. That's just multiple cards. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Construct your own win condition, I guess, for thrones, like, ignoring for the moment, like, the mill condition... To cards that construct your own win condition, we're basically either looking at stuff that increases your power or increases like your board state or hand or just, you know, is focused about making your situation better. Yeah, so, I think. Like Acolyte of the Waves would be a constructive card. Equally, the High Tower would be a constructive card, say. So. Yeah, constructive is the right word, I think. Anything that gets you towards 15 power as quickly as possible is kind of the far side of this category. You know, superior claim, I think, is probably the most... It's like the most direct way, right, of getting to 15 power. All it does is get you more power. It doesn't do anything else with the rest of the game. Yeah. It's just... It's the most direct way of getting your win condition online. And then maybe more towards the middle of this kind of constructive thing would just be high gold plots. Yep. About like putting characters onto the board, basically. Yeah, and like some of those, like for example, trading with the Pentoshin, like Summer Feast, they yeah. not only construct your win condition, but they actually help construct your opponent's win condition. Yeah, they are double-edged. Yeah, so they're they're doubling down on this this end of the construction thing. 
And then you've also got, I guess, sort of the more nebulous stuff, like, you know, just an efficient character. So like ranging party, say, you might be using it for military challenges, but by itself, you're playing it because it's helping you, it's making your board better. Yeah, I mean, that is a good example of just, you know, it's very efficient. All it does is make your board better. You know, it's not really interfering with your opponent apart from putting presence on the board. And then I guess the other side of that is those cards that only really interfere with your opponent's win condition, which I think kind of one extreme to this in certain with superior claim, though it is a bit of grey area. I'd say hands judgment. Yeah, I mean, hands judgment is a completely useless card in all scenarios unless your opponent's trying to do a thing. Yeah, exactly. And I think it kind of what the grey area is talking about is if you cancel their cancel when they're trying to cancel your. <laughs> The constructive card, so, but, you know, we'll kind of get into that. Even then, you're just trying to impede their attempts to impede you, right? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. And so, I think, but then, probably more cards that fit into this category are the destructive cards, the put to the swords, um, Robert Strong, and then you've got the softer cards, like Milk of the Poppy, um, Nightmares, and uh, Neil, I guess. Yeah, or like to, you mentioned superior claim as a quintessential constructive. I, for a moment, I thought you were going to suggest like King's Blood. It, yeah. it does nothing except reduce your opponent's power. Obviously, yeah. you know, that's that's not necessarily a good card, but you're not going to confuse it for a constructive one. No, exactly. I mean, and I think it's kind of good just to go over what we mean by both of these things. And I think. Just by the constructive versus destructive or interference, possibly. It's kind of obvious what kind of cards we mean. Yeah. But uh, I don't really think any of the cards fit neatly into those categories, apart from, you know, some sort of case examples. I mean, every character, right? Yeah, like you mentioned mentioned Robert Strong as being an impeding card, but it's still something you can use for military challenges to get unopposed or to protect your other characters from military claim, or even as, like, the absolute lowest of the low bars, claim soak. Yeah, exactly. So I think the weird thing about Thrones is that characters kind of fit into kind of all categories at the same time, because Thrones is so much about challenges and about winning challenges. So, is the answer deck-dependent? I mean, I think it probably has to be. It's sort of like, it almost defines what type of deck you're running. So like a rush deck is going to be running more copies of superior claim than, you know, a control deck. I think it's probably not too controversial to say. Yeah, uh, I think you're probably right on that. Uh yeah, it is deck dependent and to some extent you can there are some rush decks like you said are a good example of just decks that are only about advancing their own win condition and not really interfering with your opponents bar you know, blocking their challenges. But everything else in your deck really should be pulling that way. So if that's the sort of play style your deck you want to do, you kind of want to maximise as many of these constructive cards as possible. Yeah, and I mean, even with the, uh, you say, about stopping their challenges, you'll probably be happy to let some through to have unopposed power to steal. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But yeah, I think definitely Rush, you'll be wanting those constructive cards. And I think definitely... Like hard control, you're obviously, you know, like burn, 
surprisingly enough, you're going to run burn cards, and they probably would count as destructive rather than constructive. And like Neil, you're going to be running Neil effects and so on. Um, I think there's definitely most decks are going to be somewhere in the middle. Yeah, probably. I think, you know, you're a big fan of mid-range decks, good stuff, as it's known. And I think when I when you say the term mid-range, when I think you mean it's kind of this middle of constructive versus destructive, it can interact with your opponent, but also can advance its own win condition at the same time. And it's not really playing either game plan solely. It's kind of trying to take advantage of the board state as it is. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think like the Stark deck that I've been on and off playing for the last year or so is probably a very solid example of that, where you've got like cards like Great John Umber, for instance, who is simultaneously doing multiple challenges for you. Like the stand part of him is constructive in your favour, but the intimidate part of him is, you know, controlling. Yeah, and then cards like Winter is Coming, you can make it into military claim to disrupt their plan, or you can turn it into power claim to advance yours. That's why it's kind of always about, because it's so flexible. And these kind of flexible cards are really helpful when you're trying to construct your deck, if you're kind of going for this mid-range plan. And that's something you should really be thinking about when you're building your deck. How versatile is it, you know, when you're behind and when you're ahead? Yeah. And, I mean, we'll get on to this probably more so in a moment, but I think draw is an interesting case of the flexibility in that, it's, it's sort of like Schrodinger's flexibility, because you don't know what cards you're going to be drawing, whether they're going to be constructive cards or destructive ones, until you draw them. Um, yeah. But either way, yeah, so sometimes, you know, if you're drawing into the likes of Winter is Coming, then it's constructive draw or destructive draw, depending on how you use Winter is Coming. Maybe that was a poor example, but you get the gist. Yeah, and I think you also... For constructive decks, to go back to like rush things, you have a linear plan and your plan is just to ignore your opponent and kind of go from it, you know, zero to 15 as quickly as possible. But you kind of need a bit of resilience and sometimes that can be brought into your deck with a couple of nightmares or hands judgments just to kind of protect your own win condition. Yeah. You know, yeah. like we were saying earlier, you know, you're using your hands judgment just to cancel their cancel and that's something that. I think you kind of do need and it's something you should definitely think about. And if you choose not to include those kind of disruptive cards, it should be quite... You need to think about it. Yeah, like, for example, uh, like the Drown God Sun deck, say, is almost purely constructive in its motive. It's barely even trying to make challenges at you. It's just trying to get to 15 power through Drown Disciple triggers and so on. Yeah. But obviously... It's running Drown God Fanatic to cancel your attempts to impede it. It's also running his Viperize to try to take out answers you might have to it. Yeah, and you know the combo decks that played the game, they were running three Hands Judgment, three Nightmares, two Treachery, roughly, which is eight cards out of your 60. You know, that's over 10% is just to protect his own game plan, and that's as linear deck as you're probably going to get. Yeah, and I mean, I know you've been working on sort of like Tyrell sort of combo leaning decks, um, which are based around, I mean, not based around, but one of the tricks they do is round one, you use at the gates to fetch gate of the gods. And that means yeah. that you've got a, a seven location in play and can therefore use the fate's decree 
which is a fantastic card for stopping the opponent from interfering with your plan. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think, you know, Gates of the God, people quite down on in comparison to the Gates, but that seven trait gives it Tyrell the ability to have the Faith Decree, which Tyrell really doesn't have much in the way of you know, Tyrell only kind of cancels. So yeah. it kind of makes up for that deficit. Yeah. And it is oddly typical, isn't it, that the faction that was already the one you based your combos out of happened to be the one with the loyal, the seven card that you can search round one. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm not sure how good it is, but it is, it's definitely something. Yeah. And then if you go for your destructive deck or, you know, your interference deck, I think you really do need to put in quite a lot of cards to disrupt your opponent's deck. You know, if that is your game plan, you do need to hit a critical mass, and I can't really tell you the number off the top of my head for that, but... Yeah, that's the thing. Like, if your game plan is purely destructive, like, if it's a hybrid and you're just trying to disrupt them enough that you can assert dominance on the board, then that's fine. But if your deck is relying heavily on the disruptive elements, then it's no good disrupt, you know dealing with four of their five characters. You need to deal with all five or else, you know, they're still going to be able to do stuff. Yeah, and that counts to, you know, cards in hand as well. And, yeah, you can't, you know, a destructive deck now, yeah, first two cycles you probably get away with, you know, military claim and maybe a put to the sword or a tears and that would kind of do enough. Yeah. Destruction to kind of disrupt your opponent. But now, economy and draw is so much better in all the factions, you do really need to hit, sort of like start killing three things a turn if you're, you know, if you're going for that destructive. Yeah, like I've been playing the Lannister Kingdom of Shadows deck um, that mm. Nico posted. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, you find that it either falls apart or it dominates, depending on whether on the round where you start triggering Cersei and triggering Nighttime Marauders and triggering Mandan Moor, if you're able to empty their hand on that round and then get to killing their characters. If you manage yeah. to do that, then you're probably going to win. And if you don't, and you've spent your load, then you know, you're know you relying on having a clever feint to try again next round. Yeah, and I think, running up to that point, the Lanny Shadows deck really struggled in that you kind of destroyed the hand, but they'd still have a board, and then they'd start top-decking, and then they'd kind of win, and you deck would kind of have only done half the job and not the full job. Yeah, I think getting Mandan Moore was very important for that deck for that reason, that it lets yeah. you turn your hand control into then having board control. Definitely. And I think you chatted about this recently in one of the deck building threads that it's kind of not enough anymore just to attack one aspect of your opponent's board. You kind of need to kind of go after the characters and locations or characters and hand or locations in hand. Yeah, at least two, preferably all three, because yeah. then you've really got your opponent in a vice grip. But definitely at least two, because if yeah, if you attack characters, there are so many decks now that can just be like, okay, sure, you've aggroed away all my characters, but I've got a healthy backboard of stuff. I've got maybe a card or two in shadows. I've got cards in my hand. I'll just reset you, and then I'll play stuff out. Yeah. And likewise, there's no point just hitting their hand if they can then just have a board full of characters still, and then maybe you try and reset them to leverage it, and they catch it with Return to the Fields, and suddenly they've got a hand again, they've got gold, and they replay, and then you've shot your load. Yeah. 
which obviously we talked about last yeah. episode. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Not so and long ago now. <laughs> yeah, you've forgotten that because <laughs> yeah. of this. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I think going on to that, you know, how much raw do you need to put in your deck to... Yeah, this is an interesting point, I think, is that if you have a lot of draw in your deck, you can probably afford to play with the ratios a little bit, insofar as if you want to say, say by round two, you want to have drawn X number of vaguely disruptive cards, and or you know, Y number of vaguely constructive cards. If you're drawing more cards total, then maybe you can change it from like a 40-60 split to a 30-70 split and still reliably see enough of the 30 that you see enough cards to accomplish what you want. Yeah. And obviously, the more hybrid cards you play, the easier that is. So like to go back to the start deck, it has a bunch of cards that can play both roles, like Mira, like Winter is Coming, like um, Great John, like I said before. Um, but then it also had the Wyman for draw, it had I Am No One for draw, and it had Old Gate for draw. And it meant that consistently, no matter, you know, how, like, what the exact balance of that deck was, I think probably it pushed slightly more towards constructive than destructive. I never felt like I didn't have enough tools to attack my opponent if I wanted that to be the angle I took. And that's just because I was constantly seeing cards. So you can probably afford to be a bit more slack in regards to the exact balance you want of these elements if you've got enough draw to compensate for it. And I think on the flip side, the less draw, the fewer cards, like card effects you have that draw you cards, the more you need to probably have focus on your deck because you can't afford to have top decks that go against your game plan. Yeah, and I think the other point of that is for destructive decks and uh, ones that are interfering with your opponent, basically to kind of take away all the theme from Thrones and the game, all you're really doing is trading cards for their cards. Yeah. So the example for this is a scene in flames. You spend one card and get rid of one card that from their hands, or you know a put to the sword. You play a put to the sword and get rid of a character from their board, but you spent a card and they've lost a card effectively. Yeah. And you kind of need to make it so you're if you're making these one for one trades, you need to kind of be outdrawing your opponent. Otherwise, you're in the same position. No one's really kind of got ahead in that situation. Yeah. Obviously. With those two examples, you know, the hand knowledge and you've kind of picked the best card out of the hand or, you know, they've spent seven gold on a character. You've only spent two gold on the removal. But from the sort of card perspective. Oh, no, it totally makes sense. I mean, that exact attitude is why the mantra of first edition was draw equals win. Because there were so many of these one for one trades that if you were drawing an extra card on your opponent every round, you almost certainly were winning that game. Yeah, exactly. uh, I think that's slightly less true in second edition, maybe, but not by much. Like, I think it's increasingly becoming good to have draw. And the only reason why we're not seeing sort of counting coppers everywhere, say, is because we've also gained other options for that draw. It's like you win or you die, or like return to the fields. Yeah. 
and obviously obviously return to the fields isn't strictly card advantage but if you time it against a reset obviously it then is yeah and i think like you said i think second edition still focuses a lot more on board than it does in kind of cards yeah but it has it has shifted away from first and second cycle kind of meta was definitely kind of all about what was on the board, top decking, and just hoping your top decks would be kind of better. And now it's more about kind of grinding out that advantage. Yeah. And, you know, and when you're looking at cards for your destructive plan, you kind of also want to be looking at cards that kind of get you two for ones. Which is yes. Use, use like, say, Sir Robert Strong, just to go back to something we used already. When he comes out, he gets rid of a card their opponent, your opponent has, but also then you still have a card. You still have the Robert Strong on the board. You know, and you've kind of not, you know, they've lost a card and you've not lost a card. And then this is why kind of Ward was so mental, because you played it, you got their card, they were down a card, you were up a card. And it was just, you know, too yeah. good, basically. And similarly, we're seeing that with Drogon at the moment, where yeah. he's getting a kill every round and staying, or, you know, probably, obviously, unless they've only got characters strength five or higher. He's getting you a kill every round and staying on the board the whole time as well. Yeah, and also, I mean, that kill goes through Jeeps as well, which is even more cards. And it's good that, you know, they haven't released a card that, you know, makes it really consistent to get them out really early or anything. <laughs> Some sort of event that is a challenges action, are you thinking of? Oh, yeah, if only you didn't have Ambush, so, you know, they could disrupt it before we get there. It's okay, it's been pointed out that the Targ Knights of the Hollow Hill deck that does so well if it has Drogon round one. Will only have six gold for that challenges phase, so it can't play uh, music of dragons and then go and get Drogon. Oh, good. Oh, and ambush him in on the same round. That's good to know. Yeah. And then I think this draw point kind of leads us to the consistency point of how whammer can you make you, your elements very consistent? I mean, there's a few ways, but I think the one I suspect you're getting at <laughs> is making it so that you get to choose them from a set of seven elements and select the exact element you want. I think that is what I'm getting at, yeah. Like if they were in a side deck where at the start of each round you got to choose one and have it interact with the game for that round. Yeah, that seems like a good set of cards to be able to dictate how you build your deck. So on the subject of plots, which, you know, surprise is what we're alluding to, do you think that the plots that you choose should complement the cards that you're running or can you sort of like outsource elements of what your deck's trying to do to the plot deck um i guess to give a personal example again the tyrell wars from last summer had a very very constructive draw deck with almost no destructive effects in the entire list but then the plot deck was almost entirely control cards even though um it wasn't actually running a full-on reset beyond first snow uh, at least characters, yeah, political disaster. But for characters' sake, it wasn't running either of the Valors. But it had... Was it? A, no, no, my version was all uh, all non-reset, because that was when Tyrell was at its stupidest, and the theory was the only deck that could out-construct the deck was another Tyrell deck. Bah. But in that plot deck, it had your King Commands it to control Rush, it had Filthy Accusations, it had Breaking Ties, it had King in the North, it had Political Disaster all these plots that to varying degrees are about impeding your opponent more than advancing your own game. 
Yeah, North Rounders as well, I think. Not, not North Rounders. Uh, what's the Saka location one? It's gone out of my head. Saka location? Uh, nothing Burns Like a Cold? Nothing Burns Like a Cold, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, we talked about this last first time was with the other occurrence, well, the start deck we've been talking about. You know, that had marched, had Nothing Burns, uh, City Besieged, you know, all these kind of controlly cards in your plot deck. So it means that your balance in your draw deck could be kind of more constructive. Yeah, and on the flip side, you get control decks that, as you were saying, have a lot of these one-for-one based control cards in the draw deck. And so in the plot deck, they're on, you know, maybe two counting coppers, which, you know, ultimately counting coppers is a constructive card. It's giving you more ways to advance your game plan. Yeah, and you kind of do need to be able to find your destructive cards of those. But I think if you look at a Martell destructive deck, that's kind of running all destructive plots. It's kind of sometimes running two resets, two march to the walls, uh, a retaliation. You know, it hits that kind of critical mass. And then if you look at a rush deck, that plot deck is usually no reset. And then could be Clash Kings, Tony the King. You know, it's probably running a bit of draw and econ, but then it's running like two closer plots. Yeah, maybe its most controlly plot in the plot deck is Force March, just to yeah. clear space for it to go for the win. Yeah, exactly. And I think Force March is another one of these cards that is so good because it is so flexible. Mm. You know, Force March is great. If you're playing Sea of Blood, Force March is great for you. But also, playing Force March against Sea of Blood is also good. Yeah. You know, like, it kind of does everything you kind of want in a plot. Yeah, it can give you breathing space, but also can give you the ability to close out the game. And that's why I think it's seen so much play is because it kind of fills every role. And it's these kind of plots you should be looking at and thinking, you know, if you're just kind of building a good stuff deck, you kind of want, you know, the utility as well, like we was talking about with Winter is Coming. Yeah. Yeah, the more situations that a card is good in, the better the card is. Yeah. I mean, you've done uh, write-ups in the London Facebook group about sort of like the value of quadrant theory of how is this card when you're behind? How is it when you're ahead? How is it at parity? Yeah. And having cards like Forced March that are good in multiple scenarios immediately makes them more flexible. And I think the this discussion of constructive versus destructive is often sort of adjacent to that. Yeah. And, you know, especially when we're talking about in the middle, like we're talking about, you've got to, if you're going for that middle route, you kind of want to be flexible and not kind of do a half-half job of both, but kind of be able to do both when you need to. Yeah. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it does. Because, like, if you're drawing cards out of your deck, then you want them to be cards that are, like, suitable to the situation you find yourself in. And if you're playing more as that mid-rangey good stuff, then you're less likely to have a specific theme you're working to. You're going to have to adapt to whatever the current scenario is. And if you're drawing cards that are purely in one direction, then it's going to be a lot of time when you draw them and they're useless. Like, take Superior Claim, for instance. You know, you might think, oh, I'll put one in just, you know, just as like a cheeky closer. People won't see it coming. They'll think it's safe because I'm only going to get to 13. And then, bam, I win the game. And then you just draw it loads of times when what you actually really needed was something that would control the board and help you out. Yeah. And I definitely think that kind of best case scenario thinking is people always fall into. I say, yeah. you know, that's a bit of a general statement, but be wary of falling into that when you're kind of building your 
deck and especially with this in mind the destruction and the construction and the flexibility i think the corollary of that is when people see cards in a faction they dislike they always imagine the perfect scenario for that card so they can complain about it yeah i think this is pretty obvious from all the facebook posts <laughs> and yeah i think giving all that you know that's a lot to think about when you're building your deck and there aren't really hard and fast rules you just be conscious about what you're doing and about the cards you're including and making the decisions and don't make them because you think that's what should be right you know like you need to think this is the reason why i'm doing it and that's why it's in there and not just kind of do it because that's what you've always done or that's what you've seen other people do or this is a good card so it must go in yeah you don't want to include cards either as a norm or because you just sort of assume it's it's it belongs in there you need to sort of evaluate the reason for the card and how it's working towards your game plan yeah and i think building a deck at the start with a clear game plan is quite a good way of building decks and obviously we don't want to go too far into your sort of deck building episodes mm. but i always sit down and think what am i going to do with this deck am i going to make a attrition deck am i going to make a rush deck am i going to make a killy deck or you know an aggro deck and, it, and then once i've built it when it's like 65 cards or 70 cards, they go through and go, does this fit my game plan? You know, have I only put this in because I've imagined a scenario where I've got these three of the cards in hand and this is the one I need. You know, you need to kind of go through and go, does this meet what my deck is trying to do? Yeah. I usually end up building the other way. I find I tend to put in all the cards that I think are vitally important for whatever the theme I'm set, running, as you say, like an attrition theme or whatever. Yeah. Like the ones where it's like, well, if I don't include these cards then I've not built the deck properly. And then after that, I just kind of fill it out with good stuff. Ah, fair enough. What, you know, sort of thinking, okay, I've got the stuff that will make the deck be unique. Now let's put in all the boring cards that will make it good. Yeah, that's probably easier than trying to cut stuff, maybe. It's a lot easier to, you know, kill your children if you didn't give birth to them in the first place. And I think that's the image I want to leave people with. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Although, actually, I do have one other thing I want to say on the uh, the elements aspect of this before we uh, wrap up. I don't know if you've got anything else. But I did want to briefly go into how much you factor in the meta. Like, So you've mentioned Greyjoy Sea of Blood before. Would it be fair to say that in the environment of Greyjoy Sea of Blood that maybe... Because that deck was sort of like single track minded and could decide the game very suddenly, the decks that were doing better in that time and therefore the ones that probably were more worth spending time investing in were ones that had more controlly disruptive answers in them. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think everyone complained about the Sea of Blood meta, but actually I quite enjoyed it as like, okay, yeah. my deck needs to, it gave you a clear plan of oh my deck needs to deal with this deck but also still win the game as well and it was very easy to think because sea of blood is so linear its game plan is so narrow it's like oh these are the cards that stop that game plan i'll put them in you know made it quite sort of nice in a way of like it was a meta problem and it's quite easy to solve yeah. and then those decks kind of did well and then that kind of shifted the meta because everyone stopped playing sea of blood i found because everyone turned it off and then you kind of end up with a much more mixed meta yeah i mean we you know we had the uk grand championships a couple of months ago and that was right at the end of that meta because the restricted list where sea of blood got restricted came out like the day after the tournament 
Yeah. And I remember there being a few Sea of Blood in the field. There was one that made the top eight. But broadly, the top eight was quite mixed. You know, there were a couple of Starks. There were like two or three Greyjoy. But then there was also, you know, a Baratheon. There was a Targ. Um, there was a Night's Watch. Can't remember on the others. But yeah, you get the idea. There, there was a decent mix of stuff. And Sea of Blood hadn't just dominated because people had solved it. But yeah, I guess yeah. my question then is, if you recognise that a deck needs these certain aspects to succeed, it, it, you know, if you're taking it to a tournament, then is it better to take a deck that you like and then tweak it to suit that matchup? You know, like say, okay, well, this is more of a constructive deck, but I guess currently the situation demands it needs a few more destructive elements. Or, you know, to give a reverse example, I'm expecting there to be a couple of Martel Wolf decks that are just going to attrition away the board to nothing and then try and win slowly. So maybe I don't need to run Marched. I'll run Counting Coppers so I can reflood. To to give a, an example. Or is it better at that point to say, okay, well, this deck that I have been playing doesn't suit the current meta, so instead I'm going to move to this other deck. Like, do you, do you think that a deck can be tweaked for the meta it's in, or do you think that the process of solving a meta is finding the decks that work best in it, and then just sort of optimizing them in a vacuum, and then seeing which of those, you know, optimized decks is best suited for the scenario? I think you've just asked uh, listeners questions question on your own. <laughs> I think this could be a whole podcast, but okay, answers in the comments, please. <laughs> yeah, I think you can definitely put a bit of secret tech into your deck to tech against the meta and shift it a little bit one way or the other. But there's only so far you can kind of push a deck before it kind of breaks down, I think. So it kind of depends on how flexible was the deck originally and how much do you have to change it to suit that meta? Because sometimes the meta is only shifts slightly and at that point, then you can maybe make one or two card changes and just readdress these ratios that you have. But then sometimes it just goes too far. And I think an example of this is early on in the game, there was that Tyrell Knights Rush deck, which is all kind of really cheap knights, play Tony King, win the game. But then First Snow came out and that became the meta. And it's then impossible to turn that, like make a few tweaks to that deck yeah. to address the balance. But then if the meta had just changed a bit to be slower and a bit more controlly, you could probably make a couple of changes just to kind of deal with that. But I think decks get to a point where they just break and you can't use them. But you shouldn't just give up on a deck straight away. There's definitely a bit of testing involved. And I think it's just a very complicated question, isn't it? Yeah. A lot of factors. I spent most of that sort of nodding along and then realised that the listeners can't hear me nodding. Yeah. (laughs) But... Yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah, and people have their pet decks, and you stick with it, but you've got to ride that wave of them. Sometimes it'll be bad, and sometimes it'll be good. And sometimes it is worth just throwing it out, you know, well, putting it in the cupboard and waiting for a a sunny day again for it. Yeah, knowing knowing when to put a deck in temporary retirement is, uh, is a good skill to have, definitely. I think this is where people like you and I, who are, you know, the callous mercenaries who'll play whatever faction we like, have a huge advantage over people that are loyal to one or two factions, or even loyal to like one or two play styles. Yeah, 
and I think you should definitely play more varieties. And even if you don't really like playing them, you should play. If you don't like playing attrition decks, you should play them to work out how to play against them as well. Yes. You get so much from piloting it than you do than just playing against it. Yeah, you see what is annoying, what order they're probably having to do things, and which sort of like what the weak points are in their you know their armor. Yeah, and you know that Tyrell Wolf deck that was around, people hated playing against it, but once you kind of played it yourself, you kind of knew what it was doing, and you could just kind of play around it, and you know the pitfalls you'd fall into not knowing that matchup basically mean the game is really horrible. But then when you know the matchup, it's actually really interesting. The same kind of goes for builders. People hate playing against builders, but if you've played builders, you kind of know what it does and then you know what to do against it. Yeah. No, I, I love playing against builders. Yeah. Um, just because it's generally a really interesting matchup for a couple of turns. And then if you, at that point, you know, it's not going to be interesting anymore. You can just concede. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But not to get too far away from the question originally asked, I think your kind of choice on how uh, constructive or you know control your deck is is 100% matter con- dependent, and you should always be thinking about the matter if you're trying to win. Yeah. You know, everything about evaluating cards and evaluating decks in this game is about context and not about anything in a vacuum, really. So, you know, bear that in mind, basically, is the answer to this question, and just think about what you're doing. Yeah. So it's quite a long, wordy episode. What kind of short soundbite bits could we put in just to say these are the things you should be thinking about? I think, like I said, the meta, how much draw have your deck got? How flexible are the cards you're putting in? And have you kind of reached that... If you're going for a more linear game plan of either constructive or destructive, have you reached that critical mass? Yep. I think that's a very good summation. Yeah. Don't know if there's anything else we talked about. Probably. We talked about a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, well, thank you very much uh, to Michael for asking the question. Uh, and thank you very much to Matt for helping answer not just this one, but the other two that we did like a month ago and all three of them again a couple of weeks before that. It's, it's been a journey. Been very good. And I think the one thing I'd like to say to listeners, if you kind of want to get better at the game about these things either do a podcast or write about it because yeah (laughs) actively talking about the game in a very sort of like theoretical way is very helpful to your actual game plan like playing the game sorry yeah no i couldn't agree more i think i i don't think i'm as good as i'm often touted to be but i definitely am a lot lot better than i was before i did this podcast yeah, and same with my like Facebook posts. The more I sort of write about things, the more I sort of realise the mistakes I'm making and kind yeah. of... And it just, like, a lot of the time, like, I'm, uh, you know, a sad nerd. I spend all my time, basically, my mind just deviates to thinking about Thrones. But yep. by doing sort of, like, stuff on specific issues like this, especially when often it's being suggested, you know, by the people on the podcast thread or whatever, it means that I'm sort of making my mind think about the game in a different way. And that's a really useful sort of way of training yourself at the game. Yeah. Although I am going to, of course, have to kick you off the cast because you just recommended a bunch of people to start up competition. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, they're obviously... If you want to you get better at the game, just listen to listener questions. And if you've already listened to every episode, go back to the start and listen to them all again. Yeah, I mean, obviously not everyone has time, but maybe engage the game in a slightly different way. You know, don't just keep playing and building random decks, kind of ask these kind of style of questions in your like chats and stuff. Yeah, I completely agree. Right. Um, one very last quick thing before we go. Um, I posted about this on my Facebook page on the day that we're recording. Who knows how many days in the past that will be. Um, set the over-under at like 14, I guess. But uh, recently, uh, Listener Questions, the podcast, uh, has started expanding into the realm of sport call quizzes. Um, so every Wednesday uh, on the Facebook page, there is going to be a new Sporkle quiz posted. Uh, I'm just sort of talking about it here in case people like uh, listening to the cast, but, you know, maybe don't follow the page. Um, and it's going to be, I guess, no, actually, I'm trying to look up what the name of the profile is on Sporkle, but they're all set to private. So the only way you can get them is via the link. Um, so, yeah, go on Listener Questions Facebook page, you know, like and subscribe. Um, but if you are interested in quizzes, they're going to be showing up every week, and that will be fun. Uh, and I get zero credit for them. Uh, Kemp did all of the work for them, and I'm just reaping the rewards by having them associated with my channel. I tried to do it today. Uh, I got halfway through and realised I should go back to work, <laughs> but I very much enjoyed it. Yeah, today I thought was an interesting one. And you can tell the people that are used to sporkle quizzes and the tricks in them um, by who was complaining about uh, some of the tricksy ones. Um, yeah. So, like, my, you know, turn off the cast at this point if you don't want spoilers for the first of these sporkle quizzes. Um, but it, the category was cards with spring, summer, autumn, fall, or winter in their uh, title. And you get the feeling of who's, who's used to doing these quizzes and who isn't by who were the people who were complaining about Starfall and Starfall Cavalry and so on being in the full section and who were like, well, yeah, of course it should be. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was quite happy because I was writing uh, a summer one. And I can't remember which, uh, when I was writing, but obviously I just typed summer and got two of them right. Yeah, so. yeah I, I did that too, because obviously I didn't make the quiz. And so yeah. I went to put in Summer Harvest and then managed to get yeah. both versions of summer as a result. Yeah, I think that was, that was the same one I chose as well. Yeah. If you want to play the whammer i got 31 out of 33 um although two of those 31 i got with like 10 seconds remaining i was suddenly like oh crap there are seasons agendas kings of winter kings of summer and oh, got two at the last minute so many of these i didn't get earlier but now i'm going to go back to it and get a really high mark nice yeah i've given you some little tips and tricks there yeah um right but yeah so thanks michael for asking the question thank you matt very much for answering um, and thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, and until next season, see you soon.